Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, as we continue our study from Genesis, Pastor Tim brings us a message where we wrestle with the complicated issue of addiction. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If I've yet to meet you, my name is Tim. Welcome, welcome. Uh, by the way, if you yawn today, you owe me coffee. Okay, that's the rule. Um, if I yawn, I owe, that's a lot of coffee, and that might happen. Um, but we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11. This is a story. Uh, if you're new with us, uh, we've been working through Genesis and we, um, we started at the beginning of the year, and we are now in Genesis chapter 11. It's a, sh- it's a short little story. It's a relatively familiar story to many of us, I think. You'll find it relatively familiar. Um, but it is, at, the, at its foundation, it's a story of how brand new technology, in the case of the story, it's the brick. Um, brand new technology for the time. Uh, but this technology came with all kinds of promise and all this opportunity. And at the same time, the same technology presented a significant risk. And, uh, and so I thought, uh, that's a pretty relevant topic. Would you agree? Technology, potential, risk. Uh, we are living in what some have referred to as, the, as a technological revolution. Um, so you've heard of like the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. Uh, many are referring to what we are in right now as a technological revolution. Um, and so I thought uh, it, it might be a helpful way to start today to allow our newest technology that everyone's talking about, but it's only a new thing in the last month or two, uh, to allow it, that new technology to fix a problem that I have had in my sermons that has gone way back to seminary days. Um, I, uh, when I was in seminary, I had a preaching professor and this preaching professor really tried to drill it in us, uh, students, that the very first line you say in your sermons, uh, it really should, like, that line really, really matters. And so you should craft that line. You should think a lot about it. It should be something, something funny or something that causes some kind of a sus- suspense. Um, but but and this, this was the language of my preaching professor. If you don't do this, you will likely lose, according to studies, you will likely lose one-third of uh, your congregation to sheer boredom. They're just going to check out right away. They're just going to, they're gone. Your, your instant screensaver face, right? Like just, but you're thinking about basketball or whatever else. Uh, that was 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago when that advice was given to me. And what I've recognized uh, to the disgrace of my preaching professor that the line that he told me, so back then he critiqued my, my sermon and he said, you know, gave me some advice on the sermon. But the very first thing he said was, you got to fix that opening line. That's a bad opening line. It's a really boring opening line. And to his disgrace, I have not. <laughs> I've actually used the same opening line. You may have noticed this. For 15 years, I think every Sunday I use the exact same opening line. It, 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 the, the line you've heard me say again and again and again and again and again, if you've been with us, is... If you have a Bible, please turn with me to, and then I give the Bible passage. that we're, So today, it's if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Boring. Snooze. You lost a third of them, I'm told. So uh, I thought, you know what? Well, let's use our newest technology, and let's see if we can fix it. Um, uh, have you heard of ChatGPT? 
Is this new to you? Maybe it's new, it's new to everybody. But a couple months ago, uh, ChatGPT, this AI software, uh, came out. And the AI software, uh, if you're unfamiliar, it is, um, it is like Google that you can put in an, uh, like a question or you can ask it a prompt. And it'll kick, Google will kick you back a bunch of hyperlinks, like a bunch of different websites. What ChatGPT does is it gathers all the content from all the internet and it gives you an answer. So instead of like having to scroll, you just ask the question, and depending on how good your prompt is, you get kicked back. Uh, here's the answer to the thing, right? Like, the, depending on who you ask, uh, ChatGPT is either this innovative thing that's going to change business and school forever. It's going to make it so much more like, I guess, better, um, or it's going to bring about the robot revolution, and we're going to need to call Arnold Schwarzenegger and have us have him save the day. Depending on who you ask, people are very divided about whether or not this is good news or bad news. Uh, teachers, you probably already experienced uh, that this is disruptive. All new technology is somewhat disruptive, but this is very disruptive uh, because every, depending on how you ask the prompts on ChatGPT, this AI software, every answer it kicks back is a unique answer. And so uh, it's hard to tell if it's plagiarism or if it's just ChatGPT. Anyway, people are divided. Uh, but I thought, you know, let's utilize the new technology, see if it can help me fix the problem I've had for 15 years, uh, write a better opening line for a sermon. So I, I put in a prompt, something along the lines of uh, write an interesting or funny or suspenseful um, first line of a sermon to capture a congregation in the very first line. Let's workshop them together. Let's find, uh, you can help me figure out which one of these is the best. I'm gonna give you three, my three favorites. Uh, option number one. So, again, anything's better than, if you have a Bible, turn with me to, oh, screensaver, boring. Option number one, praise the Lord, saints of God. I believe that God has a powerful message for us today, and I'm excited to share it with you. Yeah, 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 okay. Uh, option number two, friends, I feel the fire of the Holy Spirit burning within me, and I know that God has a mighty work to do in our midst this morning. It feels a bit much. For an opening line of just my opinion, uh, it's like uh, at some point when you're dating, you should probably have a conversation about whether you want children. But if it's the first thing you say in the first five minutes of a conversation on the very first date, maybe a bit much. All right, third one. I like this one, okay? So this was maybe the new go-to. This is the third option. Good morning. My name is, and then fill in your name. So I'll just fill it in. Good morning. My name is Pastor Tim. Hold for applause. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm sticking with my original. I, uh, as, as good as all those are, uh, they all seem a bit presumptive. Uh, <laughs> sorry, chat GPT. Uh, maybe it'll get better and it can do the work for me. But right now, if you have a Bible, turn to me to Genesis chapter 11. Um, I know, snooze, snooze. Uh, we're going to begin by reading it together, and then we'll try to unpack some of the things we read. Um, and, well, you'll see. Um, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, 
If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city is called Babel, because, where the, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That's the story. Short story, nine verses. Um, it's one of the shorter stories in your Bible that is one of the kind of big stories in your Bible. It's only nine verses long, um, and there's a lot of angles we could take on this particular story. Uh, we could play the, my, our, our favorite game. We could play Find the Elephant because uh, there's a lot of them in here, right? There's a lot of uh, really interesting questions that I think we should ask, and they will take us on a journey that would be really good to go down. Um, but this morning, we're not going to do that, uh, so I'm sorry. Maybe... We'll do a cutting room floor at some point, and we'll kind of cover some of that. Uh, But we could talk about uh, this is the story uh, that will be the one of the foundation stories for a city called Babylon. Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, will be the one of the major enemies of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. About a third of your Old Testament is devoted to an incident known as the Babylonian Exile. And this is the introduction to the Babylonians. And so uh, these short little nine verses are trying to tell us something about who this empire is going to become and and what the empire is going to be built upon. We can talk about that, um, but we're not going to. Uh, There is something else in the story that I I think is a bit more urgent for us. Uh, This other thing includes technology. That's why we start there. Um, It includes technology, but it's not limited to that. Uh, In fact, uh, I think you could place technology under a bigger umbrella. Uh, And uh, this bigger umbrella is something that our families, almost all of us, I would imagine, at some level in our families have dealt with this. Uh, Many of us have friends that have have gone through this. You know, it's funny the first time, and then the second time it's kind of funny. But when when she interrupts every single time, you start asking if Siri... Anyway, on technology of all sermons. Um, But I want to spend time... Uh, thinking this morning about the subject, the, the bigger umbrella, the subject that many of us have wrestled with, uh, the subject of addiction, addiction, um, which I, I know is it's a, it's a heavy subject. I can acknowledge that. Uh, first service, I mean, we're all a little tired in the nine o'clock service with a time change. And, and I'm recognizing that I'm saying, this is a real, this is re- the stuff we're going to look at this morning is really heavy. And especially if it's somebody in your life or um, I, I try always with these kinds of messages that are really targeted and pointed uh, to, to acknowledge it a couple weeks ahead and let people know kind of what's coming. Just, just in, I don't want anyone ever to feel like they're on the spot. Um, and this is one of those messages, like it's just really personal for so many of us. For others, it's like, I haven't dealt with that. And maybe this is just something you file away in the background somewhere. Um, but for a lot of us, uh, this is really, this is a tough one. Um, and I just think that the church should talk about the real stuff. And I think you would agree with me on that. Uh, we shouldn't just repeat cliches back and forth every Sunday and then feel good about every. We, we really should talk about the real stuff, the stuff that for many of us has broken our hearts, has torn us apart, um, has uh, caused us to spend many nights awake, many nights in tears um, over somebody we care deeply about. Um, for some of you, uh, it's been a very personal journey and it's caused you to question whether or not this life is even worth living. And uh, I just think as a church, it's really important that a church deals with the real stuff. And so, yes, it's heavy, um, but I think it's important we go here. Uh, 
if you pay attention to studies on, on addiction, what studies will tell us is that, uh, well, Harvard, um, you've heard of Harvard, Harvard, uh, one out of 10 uh, Americans has dealt with an addiction to a substance, drugs or alcohol or pain medication, um, some substance. One out of 10 Americans has dealt with uh, an addiction. Um, but it's not just alcohol that you can become addicted to. That's the one we'll, we'll, alcohol and drugs will be the ones we spend a lot of our time thinking about today. But there's a lot of substance. There's a lot of things that want our, want our attention. Um, want a, the, the line in the scripture was to make a name for ourselves. Want to pull us away from God. Uh, things like uh, food. I mean, it's possible to be addicted to just the pleasure food gives you. It's a different kind of addiction for sure, but it's possible. Uh, the Sugar, right? That's a thing. Uh, it's possible to be addicted to things like exercise. Uh, I, I've experienced this in my own life. Like it's possible to like that, that becomes almost like an addiction. Different kind of addiction, of, of course. Um, or, or technology, TikTok. I have a friend who spends most of their day scrolling TikTok and uh, like checking out videos and more cat videos and more cat videos and more cat videos. Actually, speaking of uh, technology, um, let me show you a couple of statistics. The first one, the average American, did you know this? Actually, you, you, you probably are aware of this. The average American spends about four and a half hours on their smartphone every day. So that's not your iPad, your computer. Um, that's this device, four and a half hours a day. If you really want a humbling experience, uh, check, your, check your stats. <laughs> I check my stats before this, and it's a very humbling experience to see how much time this device. And then when you extrapolate that over the course of a, of a lifetime, how much time we are spent on this device. Sometimes it's for work. Sometimes it's, it's for uh, relationships, somebody that we love and care about. But a lot of the times, if we're brutally honest with ourselves, it's mindless scrolling. Uh, here's a couple studies. Um, uh, let me, actually, let me show you this one. Um, so qu- quarter after quarter, year after year, if you notice, we are spending more time on our smartphones. That's a dangerous curve, right? Like, can we acknowledge that that's a dangerous curve? More and more. Now, what's interesting is, uh, next slide. If the, so the general, generational breakdown of smartphone, smartphone use, what you discover is more and more people are saying, we wish we didn't spend so much time on our smartphone. Interesting to me that the group of people that are the most aware of this are Generation Z, um, the youngest generation. Most likely they grew up watching us on our smartphones. I, when I was a kid, my parents didn't have that. We had the long corded phone. Like this is, like, I didn't see my parents on their smartphones. Um, I'm the guinea pig generation. I'm the first generation. And so my kids are watching how I interact with technology. And apparently many of them are looking and saying, uh, yeah, that's too much. I don't want to do that. Here's another, another statistic. Uh, 68.6% of people surveyed believe that their screen time has negatively impacted their mental health. 68%. That's a lot. So if you put all those studies together, what you discover is we are spending more and more time every year on our devices, and yet more and more people are saying, I wish I didn't spend time on my device, and actually this particular device is, is actually impacting me negatively. So I want to stop, I should stop, but I can't stop. That is, an, that is the definition for addiction. This morning I want to talk about addiction um, and I'll leave, the, I'll leave the text stuff there by and large. Um, but let, let me just say this. Uh, if you are battling an addiction, 
whether it's something like a smartphone, which is somewhat dis- disruptive of your family, but not as much so as alcohol, drugs. Uh, let me say this. I truly am sorry. If you're, if you're the person going through it, I'm truly sorry for you. I really am. And I, do, I am aware of how difficult this can be. I have watched good friends have their life come unraveled because of an addiction. I've sat with really good friends who um, at one point in their life, they were filled with hope and dreams. They had the sense of like, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm going to do all kinds of things. And within a matter of months, they felt hopeless. Uh, I'm going to lose my relationships. I'm going to lose my family. I'm gonna, I've lost my money. I'm hopeless. The, the amount of time it takes to move from I have all this hope to I can't find any hope um, is shockingly small. It, uh, if that's you this morning or somebody in your life that you love, and again, I'm aware that's not all of us, but if it's you, I do want to talk to you this morning. I think the scriptures have something to say to you about all of this. Um, and let me just begin by saying, you can do this. You can do this. Uh, today does not need to be a repeat of yesterday or the day before or the day before. You can do this. You can do this. Uh, there is no one or no thing that deserves to be the master of your life other than Jesus. And if something else is sitting on the throne at the center of your heart, you can do this. And, uh, and I want to talk through the scriptures with you around how. Um, now, if you're thinking, like, what does, that, what does this have to do with the Tower of Babel? That's the right question. What does this have to do with the Tower of Babel? Let me walk you through it. Uh, notice how the story begins. Uh, Gen- uh, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Um, let's pause here. Uh, you have nine verses to tell one of the biggest stories in the Bible. They're setting up the foundation for Babylon. You have nine verses. That first verse seems really relevant to the story that's going to unfold. The second verse feels like a throwaway verse, which is the elephant question. Why is that verse there? They moved eastward and found a plain and settled there. It feels like you don't need that verse. You could tell the story without that verse. Why that verse? Well, it turns out that that word east, the direction that they moved, comes up a lot in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And almost always that direction of east is is met as like a picture for a movement away from God. For instance, uh, Adam and Eve, when they leave Eden, what direction do they head? East. Cain, after he kills Abel, uh, God sends him out. And what direction does he head? East. Uh, East is almost always this picture of, if God says, this is the direction to walk, East is almost always a picture of, I'm going in the other direction. If God says to partner with me in bringing wholeness and peace and shalom, East is almost always a picture of, yeah, I'm going to do it my own way. Uh, In fact, uh, if you just scan through Genesis, you find almost every character has a moment where they find themselves moving East. Uh, So um, Genesis, a couple examples. Genesis 13 uh, we meet a man named Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Uh, we meet a man named Lot, and is, we read that he sets out towards the east, where he eventually winds up in Sodom, as in Sodom and Gomorrah, the city of sin. 
Uh, then if you move ahead a little bit, Genesis 25, Genesis 25, uh, we read a story of, again, another story of Abraham, this time with his son Isaac. And we read that Isaac is sent away to the east. He moves to the east. And then we read about all the struggles that Abraham's son Isaac is going to go through in the east. And then I'm moving ahead a few chapters. Um, now we read about Isaac's son, Jacob. And Jacob, he also journeys east to an eastern people where he is uh, essentially tested and tempted again and again and again. My point is east is a direction in the Bible that often is connected to a, a movement away from God. A movement away from God. What's interesting in this story is they are moving east, but it's not just that they're heading east. Adam and Eve headed east. Cain headed east. In this story, we read that they're settling there. They're living there. They're like totally fine with it. Uh, one of my favorite authors um, is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of C.S. Lewis? Uh, C.S. Lewis is, uh, he was an author in the 40s and 50s. And, and maybe, maybe he's, I don't know that there's anyone who's done it as successfully as he has. He, what he would do is he would take philosophy and theology and he would tell these stories. Often uh, kids could understand them and adults like, would find even deeper things. Uh, and they were written for all generations and, um, and he would take the deepest truths of the Bible and he would tell them in a story form. And now there's lots of books that he writes that are, um, that are fiction and then there's others that are nonfiction. I love his nonfiction stuff. Mere Christianity is great. A Grief Observed is great. Um, but his fiction is fantastic. Uh, he's got a series, my, my favorite book, um, a book series that he's written is a series known as, it's probably the most famous of his, a series known as The Chronicles of Narnia. Familiar with Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, uh, they, they, first service I said, they recently turned them into movies and somebody texted me a picture of uh, the date of those movies from 2005 and said, the recent, your recent ref references are now old enough to drive. So uh, I'm getting old. I get it. I'm getting old. Uh, but they turned them into movies a little bit ago. And, uh, and yet the books are better. I promise you the books are better, but that's almost always the case. But if you don't have time to read, the, the movies are fantastic. Uh, the, the books revolve around the set of four kids. And it sounds silly to explain the premise out loud. It doesn't do justice because it's hard to explain the premise. Um, but essentially four kids, they're British. Uh, they stumble into a closet and uh, they discover that in the back of the closet, they, there's this whole magical world known as Narnia. Uh, and this magical world known as Narnia is ruled by the, this great king of Narnia who happens to be a lion named Aslan. Aslan will become the Jesus figure in the story. Uh, now, the most famous one is that first book where they, the, they, go, into the, they go into the closet um, uh, and they discover this magical world. Um, but, but one of the more interesting stories in the Chronicles of Narnia is from a, a little book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? I know, Jared, you read them to the, to the girls, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and Holly, I should say. Both of you read them, probably. Uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So the story goes like this. Um, the, little, the, the four little British kids, uh, they're on a boat and they find themselves lost in, in a mysterious island. And uh, one of the boys, a little boy named Eustace, he wanders into a cave. And uh, when he stumbles into the cave, he discovers that there is a pile of treasure, gold and rubies and tr the treasure. And immediately he sees the treasure. And if you follow the stories, Eustace is always a little bit greedy. 
So he decides, I don't want any of the other kids finding this treasure. So he decides he can't leave the cave. He's got to stay with the treasure. And he falls asleep on top of the treasure. The next day he wakes up and he sees his shadow in a body of water. And he discovers that he has turned into a dragon. He's no longer a little boy. He's no longer who he was created and designed to be. He has become a dragon. So he begins, panicked, tearing away his scales. Like he doesn't want to be a dragon. I don't want to be a dragon. I want to be Eustace again. And every time he tears a layer of scales, there's another layer of scales right below the layer of scales. And after tearing and tearing and tearing, and just, he finally gives up. He kind of quits. He surrenders. I'm, I will forever be a dragon. I quit. Um, there's a, a writer who speaks about this moment in the story, and he says this. He says, becoming a dragon is a dangerously sneaky process. Becoming a dragon takes a long string of bad choices and decisions you don't even realize you're making until it's too late. One day you glance at yourself in the mirror and a monster is staring back at you. Uh, Eustace tears at his scales and then finally he gives up and thinks, I'm just going to be a dragon forever. Have you ever, have you ever felt that? Do you know anyone in your life who's felt that? You couldn't really pinpoint the moment it happened. Uh, it's just like one scale after another scale. And then finally, you can't really pinpoint the moment, but one day you woke up and you look yourself in the mirror and you think, look at yourself in the mirror and you think, oh no, I don't like who I've become. And it's never intentional. Nobody signs their yearbook. In 20 years, I'm going to become an alcoholic. Nobody signs your yearbook that way. Nobody signs their yearbook. I'm going to fall in love with the person of my dreams and we're going to have this great romance and we're going to bring these lovely children into the world and then I'm going to blow it all. Nobody signs your yearbook that way. We all dream about the moment where we put the ring on our finger, um, but that moment where the decisions we make make force us to take the ring off of our finger the conversation with the children to say, this is not your fault. Mommy and daddy love you very much. This is not your fault. That, that's not a conversation we look forward to. It's a slow and dangerous and sneaky process. Uh, it, it's scale by scale. Uh, in our story, it's just a slow slide east. Adam and Eve's head east, Cain heads east, and pretty soon you're settling east. Um, there's a song it's actually a songbook in the middle of your Bible. Uh, it's hard to see it as a songbook because we don't have the music for the songbook, but we call them the Psalms. And the first song uh, is written by a guy named Solomon, King Solomon, David's son. And uh, Solomon writes this song about that I think perfectly describes how this whole process tends to work. Um, this, is, this is how he opens the very first song in the book of Psalms. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinner that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That's the way it often works, right? Like it starts with um, you're walking in a direction that's just a little bit east. It's just a little bit, you, you know it's not great, but you're walking it and you're thinking to yourself, I, I can quit anytime. Like I got power, I can turn, I can quit, I, whatever. I, I got this under control. And then you find yourself no longer walking. Now you're standing there. 
little harder. You stop moving. I can quit whenever I want. I've got this under control. And then it goes from walking to standing, and now you're sitting there. And now it takes a little more energy to get up. Now the work to get back to where you want to be is a little bit harder. Now you begin to wonder, am I, is it even possible to get back? Adam and Eve set out east. Cain sets out east. And then we get to the Tower of Babel and we read that they've settled there. And this is the movement, isn't it? This is the movement of sin. The movement of sin is always, it's never, it's never, intentional, and it's very rarely immediate. It's, it's almost always a slow slide, this, this, this slow movement in the wrong direction. I remember um, when I was in my kind of low to mid-20s, I, uh, I found myself, I, so I had broken, I'd just gotten out of a relationship, and it was a broken relationship, and I had this broken heart and this broken sense of, like, who am I? And because of it, I found myself making a series of bad decisions again and again and again and again. And um, I had a moment, because we often find these moments. They're actually moments of grace when you look back on them. But I had this moment where I realized, I don't like who I'm becoming. I don't like it. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not a man of integrity. I'm not a man of character right now. I don't, I don't like this. I got to do something about it. And uh, I was hanging out with this crowd at this time, but I also had this other group of friends. You know how you tend to often have two groups of friends in these moments? Um, and one group of friends is like, you should, don't worry about it. Come out with us, come. And this other group of friends, you know you should talk to, but you also know that they're probably gonna tell you some truth and you don't often want to hear the truth. Um, but I realized I gotta talk to this group. And uh, so I, I talked to them and um, it was a good friend of mine. And he said to me, I think you need to go to church again. Grew up in church, loved church um, when I was a kid, but uh, had stepped away from it for a bit. So I decided to go to church. And uh, that was a Sunday where uh, I think about that Sunday a lot because I walked into church that day needing the church to say something important to me. Right? I just needed it. I needed the church to say something important. And because uh, I, I, I needed some hope. And I show up at church and I remember the sermon. Um, it's about 30 minutes long. I don't know exactly all the points the pastor made, but I do remember the, the tone of the sermon was essentially um, sin is bad, really bad. We shouldn't sin. God hates sin because, it'll, because it messes up your life. Amen. And I'm thinking as I'm listening, I'm like, well, I already knew that. Like, I already knew this. I already knew sin's bad. I shouldn't do it. God doesn't like it because it messes up my life. It, it's all... It, I know that sin will screw up your life. I know that I, what I needed help with was how do I unscrew up my life? That's what I came hungry for. I, how do you unscrew it up? Like, it's easy to figure out how to screw it up. How do you unscrew it up? But I left having the sense of, I have to, I guess I have to clean up a little bit first and then maybe the church has something to say to me. But here's the problem. How do you clean up if Jesus is the only way to clean up? The only, the only possible way, without Jesus, I had no way to clean up. Um, and maybe that's been your experience. Uh, it, maybe that's been your experience. You, you found yourself slowly becoming a dragon. You didn't like it. And you thought, you know what? We're going to go to church. Um, we're going to try this. And your experience has been, instead of speaking hope and life and light into your life, uh, you got this sense of extreme judgment, extreme guilt, extreme shame. And you felt as though, I needed some help to get set free, but I guess I can't come here for it. 
And if that resonates with you at all, at all, um, uh, hear me on this. Um, if you felt like you've failed, not once or not twice, not 20 times, but if you've actually felt like maybe I am a failure, like may, maybe it's not just that I, I have failed, but I actually am a, a failure, it's really important to know that your Bible tells stories of people who felt the same way. And if God were to disqualify failures, uh, your Bible as you have it, my, our Bible would not exist the way we have it. Um, so think about the greats in the Bible. Uh, Moses, let my people go, Moses. Uh, then you've got King David, Great King David slings down a giant, leads the empire. And then you've got the Apostle Paul, two-thirds of our New Testament written by this church planter who has this passion in his belly for the gospel. Moses kills a guy. David kills a guy. Uriah. Paul, first thing we read about Paul, he kills a guy, Stephen. If our failures disqualify us, Moses, David, Paul, and actually, if you go through your Bible, almost every single person God uses, some major failure in their life. It's actually the failure that God enters into their life and, tra and transforms their life. And, uh, and no, no one told me that. That's what I needed to hear that Sunday. No one told me that. What I was told was dragons are bad and dragons go to hell. Don't be a dragon. What I needed help with is how do I be... How do I undragon? Um, which brings us back to Genesis 11, uh, the story of Babel. There's a detail in the story that I think is helpful to this conversation. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 3. This is the technology piece. Um, the people said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Um, now, if you're reading that quickly, that can just feel like a passing detail. Like, who cares that they made brick? Um, but... Understand that brick at this point in time is a brand new invention. For the majority of history, the way you build buildings was you would take stones and you would stack the stones and you would find little stones to hold the stones together and you could build a decent sized building using stones stacked upon each other. But you could never build a massive building. You can only go so high with stones. Then along comes the brick. We can cut the stones and we can, uh, we can bake them and then cut them and then we can actually have mortar to hold the stones in place. And with the brick, the potential is endless. Uh, there's, I read a historian who says that the brick, in many ways, more than the wheel, inaugurated human civilization as we know it. Because with the brick, you can do anything. The brick in the ancient world is the internet, the iPhone, the iPad, the chat GPT of, of the ancient world. Um, now, it's also important to know that the brick is a good thing, right? We can acknowledge that. The brick is a good thing. It's not, technology is just technology. It's not good or bad. It's just a thing, right? It's just a thing. Um, it's how we use the technology. In fact, uh, technology can bring us freedom with God. Actually, look around. Bricks lovely painted bricks, but we have bricks, right? Like this technology can bring us freedom with God. Uh, if right now we were sitting outside, this service would not go very long, right? We would get cold very quickly. We would feel the elements very quickly. These bricks allow us to sit in relative peace. The bricks can bring us freedom with God. However, the danger of, of all technology is that the bricks can also give us a sense of freedom 
without God. I don't need God. In the past, if, we were, if we didn't have the bricks and lived in an, a former era, we would have to pray when it gets cold. God, keep our family safe. Keep us alive. Now, why would I pray? I got bricks. The same technology that can bring us freedom with God can also bring us freedom from God. And again, it's not that they're bad in and of themselves. It's when the thing, the substance, the technology, the thing gives us a sense that we don't need God. It sits at the center of our life. And what you discover is if you follow the story, uh, if you've got your, actually, if you're taking notes, write down Exodus 1. Um, Because if you follow the story, what starts at Babel, and you follow this family line into the book of Exodus, just the next next book, several generations later, what you discover is uh, that the Israelite people are now enslaved. And notice what's behind their slavery. Uh, Verse 14 of Exodus 1. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What's behind their slavery? The same thing that was behind what they thought was their freedom. We can do whatever we want. We don't need God. We'll make a name for ourselves. Brick and mortar, the same invention that inaugurated civilization can become the source of their, their own slavery. In fact, you could, you could make the case that it was one brick at a time. First brick, things are good, but one brick at a time, and slowly they're moving in a path east, away from God. Uh, and that's often the movement, isn't it? It's one at a time, right? It's one, often starts with one. It's one One can gives you the buzz you need. It's like the rush. Like the first time you drink that one can, you're like, "Woo, this is great. Uh, One hit gives you like the, yes. Um, Just the fix you wanted. Just just that little upper you needed. But then you find that one doesn't do it anymore. Now I need another one to do the same thing that one used to do. And then I need a third one to do the same thing the first one used to do. And before you know it, you need like your own keg in the back of your trunk. Like, that's, I need, in order to get the same buzz, I used to get off one. That's the direction, isn't it? Before you know it, you're like hiding bottles in, in like weird spaces in your house and the next day trying to figure out where'd you hide all those bottles. Like, that, um, it starts with one. Uh, think social media for a minute. Like the first time you post, it's like, oh, okay, I'm gonna do it. Everyone's posting, I'll make a post. And then you get some likes and it's like, well, that kind of feels good. I'll do it again. Post again. And you post again and it's like, well... I'll get some more likes the third time. I didn't get as many likes this time. Fourth time. Okay, this is... Before you know it, you are sitting down with the people you love the most. Um, you actually maybe are sitting down with the person that you pledged your future with, the, the very child you brought into the world, and the whole time you are doing this. That's convicting to me too. Um. Starts with one, and it often progresses. And it's not always bad things. Uh, you know, like you buy the sweater, you love the sweater, and then you get in the car, and immediately the first question you're asking is, I wonder if they have it in red. Right? Like, and then before you know it, you're a slave to Visa. Because that's the movement, right? The movement is always, anytime it's, it's putting our hope, our joy, uh, our self-worth in the hands of something other than our God, it always is a movement towards slavery. Slavery is, I want to stop. I know I should stop, 
but I can't stop, which is the same definition of addiction, as addiction. I want to stop. I know I need to stop, but I can't stop. Uh, and it's, it's, just, it's always a movement. It's always, there's always a movement to it. Now, um, when I say the word sin, let me acknowledge that I know that that's a strong word. Uh, it is a really strong word. It's a churchy word, for honest. It's a word we don't use. But if, um, if, you're, if you've gone through it, we need a strong word for it, right? Uh, if you've watched somebody th- throw their family away and their life away and you love them, you can't, just be, you can't just say, well, they messed up. Like, like we need a strong word. We need a strong, we actually need, a, we need to call it what it is. I have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic and this friend, will, um, it, it's always stuck with me. He said that uh, getting to the next drink in the eyes of an alcoholic is like being thirsty and without water in a desert for three days. You will do whatever, you will hurt whoever, in order to get to that next drink. So uh, yeah, sin is a strong word, but I think sometimes we need strong words. We need strong words. Um, and again, it never happens overnight. It's, it's always a movement. Bricks lead to more bricks, which lead to more bricks. Bricks lead to Babel, which eventually leads to Egypt. That's slavery. Uh, years later, the apostle Paul, follower of Jesus, um, Paul, the guy who kills a guy, he will, uh, he will write language that I think accurately describes, tell me if this is not one of the best descriptions of this whole process for those of you who have walked with somebody through it. He says this, he says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Can you think of a better definition for Addiction. Having lost all sensitivity. I don't feel it anymore. I don't get the same hit I got anymore. They've given themselves over to sensuality. That's all I care about is that feeling. I just need that feeling. Uh, So as to indulge in every kind of impurity. I'll do whatever I need to do to get there. With a continual lust for more. It's never satisfying. It never satisfies. It is a slow and steady desensualization. With a continual lust for more. But here's the good news. Here's here's the news we need to hear. When you read through your scriptures, what you discover again and again is that God, when when you think you can give up on God, like, I don't need God. I'll make a name for myself. That's what they say. I don't need God. Or I think God has given up on me. I'm a loser. I'm I'm worthless. I'm a failure. Whatever language you tell yourself about yourself, what you find in the scriptures is God again and again says, I will not give up on you no matter how hard you try to give up on me. You see this in the life of Jesus more than anyone else. Jesus, again and again, no matter how bad the disciples blow it, Peter blows it bad, denies Jesus in the the moment where Jesus needs him the most. And again and again and again and again and again, Jesus refuses to give up on them. He sees something in them that they don't see in themselves. And if you're here this morning and you've come to believe that Jesus has given up on you, the, the good news, I know it's hard to believe, He would never do that. He would never do that. He would never do that. Two two truths. Uh, Here's the first, and I think they're good news truths. Here's the first good news truth. And this is a hard one to say in here, I think, but I think it's important. First truth is you can't fix you. You can't fix you. 
Um, there's just no healing outside of Jesus. Uh, and I know that's an unpopular thing to say. I, I, I totally get that. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of people who will promise you that they just do our thing. Pay me this money and I'll fix you. Buy my app. That'll fix you. Um, but you can't fix you. In fact, you probably already know this. You've probably already tried that app and you probably already tried that thing. What I am told again and again by people who have successfully navigated sobriety is you can't fix you. That's why it's, it's, why it's step one in recovery. You gotta surrender and say, I can't fix me. I don't know how to fix me. I've tried to fix me. My best efforts at best were band-aids to fix me. I can't do it. I, I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here for the coffee. Uh, maybe you're here for the music. Maybe you're here for our, um, I felt this way before. Like I just need an hour without my kids. Somebody else watch them. I get that. Um, I don't know why you're here, but I think the reason God has you here is because your soul longs for Jesus. It is the thing you need. And um, there's, a, there's a line in recovery that I, I, th- I find really, really beautiful. Um, the the uh, recovering addicts will say that an addict is not, okay, write this down if you, you might need this. An addict is not a bad person who needs to become good. An addict is a sick person who needs to become well. An addict is not a bad person who needs to become good. An addict is a sick person who needs to become well. And Jesus says, I've come for the sick. You can't push him away. You can't, you can't outfail his love. That's the first great truth. Uh, there's a moment in the C.S. Lewis story. Uh, Eustace is, um, he's, he's laid on the treasure. He's turned into a dragon. He's woken up, seen his reflection, and he starts tearing at his scales. And every time he tears at his scales, there's another layer of scales. And so he gives up. He surrenders. And Aslan in this moment in the story, because often Aslan's been there, but he hasn't seen Aslan. He can't see Aslan. But now all of a sudden he's surrendered and he sees Aslan, the great king, the Jesus figure in the story. And Aslan sees him tearing at his scales. And he says, Eustace, do you want to get better? You're going to need to let me help you. And Eustace, Eustace who is defeated at this point, he's, he's done everything he can on his own, says, yes, I want to get better. And then Aslan takes his big paw and he reaches into the chest cavity of Eustace, and he pulls out this little boy dripping with filth, Eustace. And he carries Eustace over to a well, and he places Eustace in the well, and he pulls him back up. A new creation. Eustace has returned. And I love how his friend Edmund, when he sees Eustace again breathing, and a little boy again, his friend is back, he looks at him and says, Eustace, you have been well undragoned. You have been well undragoned. I believe that our God wants to undragon you. That's why we celebrate baptism every year. It's this moment where the water itself doesn't do anything. It's just water. It's just water. It's just a picture. Jesus actually can undragon you. He can put you under and bring you back up. This morning, we're going to take communion, and maybe for you, it's this moment is the moment where you say, Jesus, I'm in. I, I can't do this on my own. I can't do it anymore. 
He will not give up on you. The, the first great truth is you can't fix you, but he can. He really can. Uh, second great truth. Here's the second great truth. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do this alone. You don't have to do this alone. Uh, the word in the scriptures again and again uh, for this moment of renewal, restarting is, so if sin is a movement away from God, the word that, that God, that Jesus gives for the movement towards him again is the word repent. You heard this word? Often repent gets loaded with all this like, turn or burn, you're such a wretched. Um, but to the first audience, they heard Jesus say repent and then they, hear, they heard him say in the, next, in the same breath, believe the good news. Repentance, they said, is good news. Uh, repentance is this idea that we're walking one way. The, the word repent is a Hebrew word, teshuva. It means to turn. The first Christians actually believed that you could be heading in the wrong direction and you could turn. That's repentance. And they said, that's beautiful news. That changes everything. Now, is that easy? Here's why community matters. Is that easy? No. Jesus is not a magic pill. Just saying, Jesus, fix me, doesn't fix you. Uh, in fact, here are these words. Jesus says, uh, you know this verse, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've heard that verse? So we want freedom. Do you know the verse right before it? It's actually part of the same thought. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. It's an if-then statement. If you do what I say to do, then you will be set free. It's not, it takes hard work. It's not a magic pill. It takes hard work. Which is why we need each other in it. You don't have to do it alone. Do it with a community. This may be too big of a community. Find a smaller community, but do it with a community. One of the reasons, uh, so if you read what we, or listen to what we say a lot, is we, we will talk a lot about how the church is a community of belonging. We need to belong to each other. Um, we, we work hard to create a, a safe space to belong um, because we, we understand that we all carry stuff. All of us carry stuff. We can't do this on our own. So I hope you feel safe here. Um, two last real quick thoughts. First, last quick thought. If somebody you love has said to you, I think you have a problem, you probably have a problem. How do I know this? Because that wasn't easy for them to say. I have been that person who's had to say to somebody, I think you have a problem. And it's hard to say those words because you know that as soon as you say them, your relationship from that point on will forever be different. They will look at you different. They may reject you. Lots, lots of times that's what happens. So if somebody loves you enough to say, I think this is something that's gotten out of control, there's a good chance. Your natural instinct is to defend. It's okay. That's what we do. But they're trying to speak to the deeper part of you. Second, last thought. <laughs> I suggest finding a path. There are other people who have walked this before you. Don't try to create your own path. Uh, find a path. It is hard work, but find a pathway. Uh, I recommend, if, if alcohol is a thing, uh, or if, if it's alcohol, I recommend AA. It's a great path. It's been proven successful in many, 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 many people's lives, built on deep biblical truths. Um, if it's drugs, uh, uh, pain meds, uh, I rec recommend NA. 
um, is a great path. There's others, but uh, those are paths that I've seen, I've seen work. Uh, in fact, um, when God pulls the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he gives them, the next moment, he gives them 10 commandments. If you read the 10 commandments, they really function a lot like the 12 steps. Here's how you stay free, Israelites, right? You want to find yourself back in slavery, do break these rules. But if you want to stay free, this is how you stay free. Um, last, you hear me. You will make it through this. You will make it through this. But not if nothing changes. Not if nothing changes. Make today that day. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till the beginning of next year. Make today that day. Uh, actually, I invite you to make communion that moment. Um, we're going to take communion this morning. We have two stations up here in the front and a gluten-free option in the back, I'm assuming. I don't know. I'll just, I see one back there. Um, and uh, the way we take communion here is you'll head forward and take the bread and dip it into the cup and then take uh, and eat on your own. And uh, there's nothing magical about this. Uh, again, it's just, it, there's nothing magical except for what Jesus promises he'll do in us, which is he will actually meet us in our death and bring about our new life. Um, would you join me for a word of prayer? Lord, uh, we are grateful that your spirit, you promised uh, your Holy Spirit to be the one who comforts and convicts. And Lord, for anyone in our space this morning in this church who's feeling your comfort, Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you speak words of comfort to us, uh, especially when our hearts are most broken and most hurting. And Lord, for uh, those of us who are feeling words of conviction, even for that, we are grateful. Lord, would you remind us that you're a God who continually brings new starts. Lord, would you allow this community to be the kind of community that's safe enough that no matter what story is shared, no matter how bad the brokenness is, no matter how deep the sin has run, Lord, that we would be a community who understands that you're the God who transforms all of it. But Lord, we, we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. We want that moment to happen for us now. Would, would this moment be the first next step in the right direction back to you? Lord, would you help us find our way back to you, we pray. In Jesus, we pray this in your name. And everybody said. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.